Amen. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you. You are truly great. And uh, thank you for that little taste of what it's going to be like to sing around the throne. You are our everything, Lord. Our everything. And we adore you. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that to them you are not their everything, Lord, I pray that you would draw them closer. Draw us all closer, Lord. And open our eyes and our understanding to your word this morning as we read our passage and just talk about it, Lord. I pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would speak into our hearts the things we need to hear from your word. Thank you for its power to separate between soul and spirit. Thank you for how it does that surgical work in our hearts and minds. And we give you permission to do that work in each of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're a guest with us, we, we go through the scriptures. We just work our way through scriptures, uh, whatever book we happen to be in. So you've joined us when we hit 1 Corinthians 10. Of course, the last few weeks we had special messages um, with uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. But now we're back in, first in Corinthians. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I hope you all had a very meaningful week remembering the price that Jesus paid for to redeem us and uh, considering the the wonder of the power of resurrection, that power that's at work in our lives even now. So we're back in uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And just uh, so we uh, remember what we've been going through and the flow of the passage, Paul had been warning the church about divisions that were taking place because of people's preferences. And he was encouraging them to consider the, the weaker brothers among them when they exercise their freedoms. In the last chapter, he defended his right to work without being supported by them. In other words, to, to not 
uh, take any offering or collection for his work. He supported himself through his tent making. And that chapter ended with the challenge to live our Christian life as if we were one of the athletes preparing for the arena, going all out, giving it all we've got, uh, everything focused, our diet, our, our activities, everything focused on obtaining the prize because we have a much greater prize than a little wreath that goes around our head or a little ribbon with a piece of metal on the bottom of it. We have an eternal reward, hallelujah. So in our passage today, Paul continues his exhortation for us to live holy lives. One way to do so is by learning from those who have gone before us. We can learn from our own mistakes, but isn't it much better if we can learn from others' mistakes? If we can see what, where they went astray and, and learn from the results of their actions so that we don't, don't go down that same road, don't end up in the same failures. Verse 1 and 2, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So uh, the book of Exodus tells this story of Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was a historical event. God had plagued Egypt and its Pharaoh finally uh, relented and agreed to let them go. And as they went out, this cloud went before them. And the scriptures say the Lord was in the cloud. So actually God was leading them where they went. And that cloud would cover them from the sun in the desert during the day, give them shade. And then at night, it would turn into a giant nightlight. It would be a pillar of fire. And it would go before them, leading them through the wilderness. The Hebrews saw all physical things as pictures of spiritual things. I think that's really important for us as we uh, study scripture because so often uh, the scripture uses the physical creation as an analogy of, of spiritual things. Um, we see in Romans 1.20 that God reveals his divine nature through the things that he created. That's why Jesus often used the physical world to illustrate things, for example, in his parables. His parables of, uh, almost all his parables use these kind of uh, physical pictures of the physical world to represent spiritual truths. People and events we read about in the Old Testament foreshadow, they're a, a type and a shadow, the book of Hebrews tells us, in the New Testament. And so that's what Paul is bringing out here. He's saying, look at, look at these pictures of the Exodus and see what they teach us. The cloud is a picture of the grace that we have when we follow God through the wilderness of this life. The, the wording regarding all the people being in the cloud and through the sea pictured their baptism into Moses. To be in the cloud pictured being in the Lord. And in a sense, Mo Moses baptized the entire nation when he took them through the sea. So Moses declared that after him was going to come someone like him. In other words, a deliverer, a leader, a divine lawgiver. And Moses was foreshadowing that great deliverer, Jesus. 
The deliverance and journey of the children of Israel is a type and a shadow of the deliverance we have in Christ Jesus. But it comes here in this passage with a very stern warning. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. The manna is referred to in Psalm 78 as the bread of angels. It fell faithfully every morning except the morning before the Sabbath when it, they got a double amount. It wouldn't, didn't fall on the Sabbath. You couldn't keep it overnight except that day before the Sabbath. And it represents our daily spiritual nourishment from the word of God. We get up every morning. We collect our spiritual manna from the Bible. At least I hope all of us do. And if you don't, uh, you can start with my devotional that you can sign up for. It comes to your inbox every morning and gets you started. But we all need to collect that manna every morning and feed on it for our spiritual nourishment. Jesus said that he's the reality of that shadow that manna was. He came down from heaven as the bread of life. So do you see that this is not just something we're working up with our creative imagination? You know, oh, maybe this could represent that, and maybe this could represent... No, the Bible clearly says these things represent these things. These, this manna is a picture of Jesus who came down from heaven to be our spiritual nourishment. He's the bread from heaven. The difference between eating manna and receiving Jesus is that those who ate the manna died in the wilderness. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 6, 49 to 52. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The shadow didn't give them life. Only the reality, Jesus' life given for us, can give us eternal life, which is to know God and to be destined for eternity in his presence. If your eyes are open to these symbolic pictures, there are so many lessons that, that we can learn. For example, just as they grew tired of the manna, so Christians can get, grow tired of their daily Bible reading and prayer time. We forget that everything we need is in the word. And, and instead, look at it as a routine. That's something we have to do and get through instead of meeting with Jesus and reading his love letter to us. Just as they longed to return to eat the garlic and the leeks that they ate back in Egypt, so we might long for the pleasures we once experienced in the world while forgetting the bondage that that sin oppressed us with, leaving us and how it left us empty. Verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The split rock at Horeb pictured Christ Jesus broken and smitten for us that we might have the water of life springing up within us. That's what Jesus was alluding to in John chapter 4 when he talked to the woman at the well. No wonder Jesus said, 
If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. And I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jewish tradition holds that that rock followed them, literally followed them through the wilderness to provide for their thirst. And that's kind of what it sounds like Paul is saying here in this verse. Certainly Jesus was with them. The cloud was with them all the way through their journey, providing spiritual refreshment for our souls if we'll come to him and receive the living water. I think Paul's saying that Jesus was with them in the wilderness and spoke through Moses to the people. Those words were their spiritual drink. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, and here's where the warning comes in, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even after all the plagues and the miracles that they witnessed, they died in the wilderness without entering the promised land. They refused to listen to God and have faith in his word. They were afraid of the giants that were in the land, just like the, our fear when we face something, if we step out at the leading of the Spirit, if the Spirit prompts us to do something we're uncomfortable with, well, we get all these what ifs, oh, what if this happens, what if that happens? We have spiritual battles that we encounter and we have to step out in faith. God help us learn from their demise. Their failure is a warning to us. It's a lesson for us. The older generation never got Egypt, which represents the world, out of their hearts. They left Egypt, but Egypt never left them. They kept dreaming of going back. That's why God was not pleased with them. We need to be aware of what our hearts are set on. If it's on the seen rather than the unseen, God will not be pleased with us. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. The younger generation saw the demise of the older generation and looked to God to defeat their enemies. They learned the lesson. They learned the lesson of faith and trust in God. Of course, it had to be renewed a few times, like the battle at Ai, which shows us that we can't rely on past victories. So you see, as we go through what they went through, as we, we're, I'm just hitting the highlights. There's lesson after lesson after lesson in the, in the Exodus. Verse six, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and failure to take the land were examples for the generations that followed, including our own, of, of the miracle of being delivered from the bondage of the world, of God's protection, of God's provision, of our failures to walk in the spirit and the results, of rebelling against authority, pictures of Jesus in the cloud, in the tabernacle, in the rock, God's loving patience, intercession, and battles with the enemy of our soul and his forces. They teach us of opportunities to die for to ourselves, crossing the Jordan, 
the battles of taking the land, of facing giants, against murmuring, failure to take it all the land, misunderstanding of our brothers, and etc. We could go on and on. There's so many lessons that fill the Exodus journey. Nearly every situation in our lives has an analogy in the Torah. However, Paul's emphasis is that though they had all these wonderful revelations and, and experiences, when the critical moment came to cross the Jordan, which again represents dying to ourselves, they failed to have the faith and act on all that God had shown them. They got right up to the point of entering. And then they began, or continued, I should say, in their doubts and their fear. In other words, never get satisfied about where you are at spiritually, thinking that you have arrived. You don't know that you have arrived until you cross the Jordan. How many people are convinced they're going to heaven and yet they live just like the world? We think all is well because we once said a prayer, but Jesus invites those who know him to enter into his joy. And that implies an intimate relationship that's more than sitting in a pew once a week. We must be honest about what we desire, about what we're really seeking. What is our heart after? If we prioritize anything in this world above the relationship of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, then we need to get to know him better. To know him is to love him, for he's more desirable than anything that he has created. All good things come from him. He alone is complete satisfaction. Just as the people could eat each day enough manna to satisfy their hunger, so Christ is more than enough to satisfy the hunger of our souls. Nothing else can. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The picture is of having begun but falling back into worldly lusts. Paul begins to list the world's pitfalls that captured the heart of the older Hebrews in the wilderness. The first was idolatry. You know, while Moses was up on the mountain, uh, Aaron collected all the golden earrings and, and formed the calf because they wanted something to lead them back into Egypt. So they, they built a calf that the Egyptians worshipped. Now think how crazy that is. Here God showed them that every one of the things they worshipped was so inferior to him that he completely destroyed them. And yet they're going back to worship those things. And could they really go back? I mean, think of it. If they turn around and go back, remember the Egyptian army got wiped out in the Red Sea and they took all the goods from the Egyptians when they left. Do they think the Egyptians are going to say, oh, welcome home, brothers? I don't think so. They, they partied like Egyptians and then they fell into immorality. How did idolatry lead to immorality? 
Gods of this world depend on our physical senses. Sight can lead to lust. That was the case in the Garden of Eden. It started with a thought that the fruit would provide something outside of God that would satisfy the hunger for knowledge. But then sight moved it a step further, looking like it would satisfy the taste buds, a physical pleasure. The people had Aaron build that calf and then they celebrated with a feast followed by an orgy. I'm going to read a few quotes from Pastor Stephen Um. Idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. Idolatry shows up in the subtle twists of ordinary desires and activities, eating, drinking, playing, marrying, having sex. These activities and desires are often not an ends of themselves, but are a means to another end, personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control. Whenever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we're committing idolatry. When we use food or substances or sex to fulfill or numb our deep desires, we're engaging in idolatry. Idolatry ultimately spoils life because we aren't able to enjoy the things for what they're actually made for. Idolatry is in the air that we breathe, and it's, and it's rarely explicit. Most people don't know it's happening. They're not saying, I want this instead of Christ. They're saying, I want Christ plus this. To get at the idols of one's heart, one has to step back and consider the way one's desires shape his or her life. What drives us to work or not to work? What desires lie behind the way we relate or don't relate to our spouse? What do we daydream about, fantasize about, long for? Do we often say, if I only had this, or if I only were like this, what is our desire pointing at? What is our affection pulling us toward? What is our end goal? Answering these questions will help one discover some of the layers of idolatry in one's own heart. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Idolatry is often the abuse of God's gift. While marriage and sexuality within marriage is a natural desire, in the Exodus story, the Moabite women use sexual seduction to lure the, the men of Israel into sex outside of marriage and then to worship the Moabite gods. That's where it ended up. The pornography epidemic is idolatry of the human form. The natural desire for beauty is made a God when the mind comes to believe that perfect beauty is going to somehow satisfy our hearts, thus replacing God in our lives. Idolatry is, in essence, replacing God with something in his creation, something we think we can control to our liking. 
However, the opposite effect always takes place. It ends up controlling us. For the temporary satisfaction we derive can only be reached again when we consume more of it. In this way, it takes over our thought life, it consumes our time to our gradual destruction. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This refers to one of the many times that the children of Israel were murmuring when they became impatient and, and were sick of the manna. Now, why were they eating manna 40 years? Because they refused to go into the promised land and said, we'd rather die in the desert. And God said, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. And yet they're blaming God because they're having to eat the manna. If we won't move forward in faith, we try to survive on past revelations. And that can seem stale. We're meant to keep growing and satisfying the hunger for righteousness and the knowledge of God. They cause the condition and then they blame the Lord for it. How easily we forget our role in our present circumstances. Paul indicates that the snakes were sent by the destroyer, which is Satan. God allowed him to do so as a wake-up call and so that Moses would set up that bronze serpent that they could look to and live, which again foreshadows Christ. In fact, Jesus will, when talking to Nicodemus, use that as an illustration telling him what was to come. We look to him, to Jesus, to be healed of the serpent's deadly venom we call sin. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, this could apply to many accounts. We don't know exactly which one Paul was referring to, maybe even this particular one of the snakes. It, it, it just seemed that they refused to learn and trust the Lord regardless of how many lessons they were given. Their murmuring is an often repeated story from the other side of the Red Sea, even before, actually, before they left Egypt, while Moses was still calling down the plagues, they were murmuring, to the entrance of the promised land and many times in between. Murmuring says we're ungrateful. Like even the Garden of Eden, we choose to turn our eyes from all the good blessings of God and focus on the one thing that we're not happy with. We want everything our way in our time. I, I slide into this really easily when I get in traffic. Can anybody relate? I mean, think of it. We travel faster than anybody throughout history has traveled. I mean, our, my ancestors, you know, riding horses and, you know, back in the days of wagons, how tough it must have been to travel a small distance. Now we can speed along in air-conditioned comfort, and I get behind an RV that's going five miles under the speed limit, and I'm upset, complaining. Tourist, go home. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know, what's, what's wrong with this? Wanting my way, not looking to the Lord, not grateful for the abundance that we have. And we live better than 99% of the rest of the world, and yet we can complain about inflation. 
Much of the world doesn't have any money to worry about inflation. God, help us count our blessings and praise him for all the goodness that we enjoy. And that's what these lessons are trying to teach us. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul is repeating almost exactly what he said in verse 6. And whenever you see that uh, a verse repeated in a short amount of time, it's like saying, pay close attention to what's being said here. This is important. These things are for our instruction. So God wants to spare us from the troubles that the Israelites brought on themselves. You know, every, every good thing from God, in fact, in the law, it says, I'm telling you, I'm giving you these laws for your good. It's for you. It's because he loves us that he gives us his word. I know the enemy likes us to think God's up there saying, don't do this, don't do that. I'm a little tyrant up here telling you what to do. No, it's out of a heart of love that he forbids certain things, that he guides us in certain ways. Now, this is especially for our day on whom the end of the ages has come. Ours is a day in which leaders are disrespected, demands are outlandish, the love of many is growing colder and colder, as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24. Lawlessness is on the increase as our government declines to uphold the laws they are sworn to enforce. Murmuring is common. It's just, it's just considered as the thing to do, the normal thing. Idols are everywhere. Immorality is lauded as praiseworthy. What have we come to that we have to pass laws not to sexually indoctrinate K through three. I mean, really, it's horrific. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is Paul's point to the spiritual prideful in Corinth and for everyone who reads this letter. One time we, years and years ago, I don't think any of you will remember this event. I don't know if any, I don't think any of you were here then. We had a man in our congregation and every time we, we were going through these stories of, of, of the Exodus and he kept saying, how could they do that? Those stupid people, what's wrong with them? Why won't they learn? And I kept saying, but they're just like us. Don't you see they're just like us? And he felt like he stood, but he fell. I won't get into how he fell, but he fell. And in, in that fall, there was church division. There was destruction of unity. And the fruit that was promised never came about. When we can't see our own vulnerabilities, when we can't relate to these people and their problems, we're in trouble. Pride has gotten into our heart and usually that means we're headed for a fall to wake us up for our good so that we can see that we are just like them. 
that the heart of man is never changed and that we desperately need Jesus and his word to guide us through life. We must always be pressing forward in our faith, seeking to know Jesus in a deeper and more personal way. You know, this, this expression is one we should all memorize. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. I refer to it in a little different way because it's kind of catchy. If you think you can do it, you already blew it. How we need to recognize our desperate need for Jesus in our thought life, in our desires, in our daily activities. If you think you're standing well enough, thank you very much. Take heed before you end up falling. Complacency and self-confidence have no place in the Christian life. We should always be like the Apostle Paul mentioned at the end of the last chapter. Running to win the prize. Always exercising spiritual disciplines. Always giving the Holy Spirit the attention and time to examine our hearts and see if there is any wicked way in us to lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. I'm going to ask Jill to lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.